You found the Love Flight podcast. I'm Paul Tizard, Fear of Flying Coach, and I've been helping Nervous Fire since 1997. So in this podcast, you are going to find aviation experts, psychologists, coaches, enthusiasts, and people normal, just like you, who have overcome their fears. Welcome. Mark Searle from IARTA. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Paul, to having you here today as well. Great to see you. Yeah, thank you. So tell us a little bit about you, your background, because you're, uh, we, I know obviously a lot, a fair amount about IARTA, but I don't know your area of it. And I don't know anything about you either. So, uh, And the listeners will be delighted to hear from official organisations such as yourself. So yeah, tell us. Thanks very much, Paul. So I'm Mark Searle, Global Director of Safety at IARTA, the International Air Transport Association. Uh, we represent uh, about 85% of the world's airlines and the traffic carried on those airlines. So uh, it's currently sitting at just around 280 airline members, most of the legacy carriers in most of the uh, countries uh, around the world. So we have a really great spread um, and we also have a lot of feed-in from, from our members around the world. Part of my role is to uh, run the uh, uh, IOSA program, which is a audit program for safety within um, aviation. And it's actually a requirement for all IATA members to uh, be registered on the IOSA registry to be able to maintain their, their membership. So safety really is uh, the thing that is the hub in everything we do in IATA. And uh, we ensure that that happens through, through our airlines. Because it is so valuable, actually, the IOSA program. Uh, what does IOSA stand for? I'm obviously where's my right moment to ask that? Not, not yeah, like it's, the, it's the it's the I, it's the IATA Operational Safety Audit, okay. and actually we celebrated our twentieth anniversary last year. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we've been doing for many many years, and it's about understanding that actually where are wherever you are in the world. There are sort of different regulators regulating um, the safety of our industry in different ways. And this is making sure that we have a gold standard across the whole of the industry. So whether you're in Europe, Africa, Asia, North or South America, everybody has to fulfill the same uh, standard requirements every two years uh, to remain on the IOSA registry. And it's something that actually um, the insurance industry realizes introduces an additional layer of safety so um, it's pretty recognized around the world as driving up safety standards and it's something we promote uh, for all the time uh, yeah. to show how those on the IOSA registry definitely have a, a, a greater level of safety performance than those that aren't. As well as the IOSA program uh, I have a, a risk a risk unit which is about understanding from all of the aviation system where there may be new or emerging safety risks and understanding as part of that uh, international community how we're going to deal with those and I'm sure that those things that do pop their head up are sort of understood and managed to a level which the industry uh, believes is is tolerable. So that's really important too. 
And actually on IATA.org, we have the Safety Issue Hub. And the Safety Issue Hub um, provides a central repository of all of those safety issues and hazards uh, that the industry is currently managing. So that collectively we're pushing forward with best practice, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pretty much my role with, with IATA, the safety risk side, managing uh, the whole aviation uh, safety system and uh, also then coming up with initiatives that drive forward uh, safety improvement across the industry as and when it's identified as being necessary. Wow. I mean, that's, well, thanks very much. Thanks for coming. That's great. <laughs> that's probably enough. But anyway, I, I, there's a couple of questions I wanted to yeah. ask you about the IOTA stuff, uh, the member airlines. But before I do that, can I just ask, you know, I was, a lot of people probably don't realize how your background, so how did you get from, where did you start? How did you end up where you are now? That's I think that's quite interesting as well. Thanks, Paul. So I learned to fly um, in the middle of the 90s. And I was a commercial airline pilot uh, for 20 years, accumulating 12,000 hours on uh, Airbus and Boeing aircraft. Following that, I uh, spent four years with the UK Civil Aviation Authority developing a new uh, team around ensuring that we actually had a, a safety strategy within the UK CAA not just for those things that are in the air at the moment, but how we bring in new innovation, um, you know, the UAS, the drones, the urban air mobility, and making sure that the aviation system as a whole remains one cohesive unit and everything knows what everything else is doing. So I was at the UK CAA for four years before wow. joining IARTA initially in Montreal back in 2019 mm. and now based in Geneva, Switzerland. So what made you make the move from commercial aviation flying i assume you don't you're not still in check now you can't be if you're doing all those things you mentioned earlier on so you've gone for the ukc you know the civil aviation authority over to iarta yeah that's got some interesting moves there yeah so i mean i had a fantastic 20 years in flying and i still miss it i have to say and there are occasions where i think about getting my medical and revalidating my license the ukcaa were brilliant about doing that and uh, all the time I was in the uh, UK CAA, uh, I was able to sort of have my uh, license revalidated every six months. So uh, many thanks to them. But quite honestly, I was looking for a new challenge. Uh, and it was a new challenge in the UK CAA, something that maybe was going to push me a little bit. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But And then the opportunity at IATA came along to sort of take that next step to, to a leadership role. And a you know, great team. It's been the right role for me. I have to say, thoroughly enjoying where I am. But uh, yeah, once you've been a pilot, flying around passengers and uh, enjoying the good weather and the bad, lots of stories. I'm sure anybody who flies um, can can relate to. It's nice to sort of go and try and do something, try and do something different. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess you're, you know, some sort of being responsible for the safety of like 300 or 400 people or whatever. You're you're actually thinking much more strategically now about the whole picture, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really important. When you're, when you're sort of flying, you are looking after you, the crew, and, and the passenger on board the aircraft. And, you know, you're interacting with other parts of the system. I mean, when you're turning the aircraft around, the fuelers, the baggage loaders, the caterers, yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But... You don't really see the system as a whole, quite honestly, and and probably because you're too busy doing the uh, yeah. job you need to do to keep the show on the road. So yeah, I like I like the sort of uh, helicopter view of seeing the whole system and understanding how I answer mm -hmm. 
and 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 all of the pieces of IATA that uh, represent every part of the aviation industry fit together to ensure that we've got a joined up approach to safety. Yeah, that's really good. So I was curious about something you said earlier on, and I missed the exact figure, but something that like eighty or ninety percent of the airlines members are IATA. I was then thinking the question that a nervous fire would be thinking: What about those that aren't members? Are they do they members of something else, or do they just fly under the radar, so to speak? <laughs> they don't fly under the radar. I think with the advent of a lot of the low cost carriers. They have a different business model, and and some of the services that we offer in IATA to some of the more legacy based carriers really don't feed into the business model um, of the of the low cost carriers. Uh, we having flown for one of them for many many years. I wouldn't say that uh, they're any less uh, safe than than those who are members of IATA, but they have different ways and means to ensure that they um, earn their money and spend it wisely to provide the best. I guess uh, ticket price for for their passengers. So it's a, it's a, it's a different it's a different part of the market. But um, having having flown having flown for a large low cost carrier, I would sort of say that actually their focus on safety doesn't wane in any any way or form because uh, they're not a member of IELTS. Yeah, that's that's fair point. Because I think the other thing was about the IOSA part of it, like. You're making lots of recommendations and enforcing these things, and then I was thinking about those that weren't members. What happens there? You know? Yeah. So, so I mean, we we have the IATA uh, family of uh, airlines, which with the IOSA members is is sort of around 420 airlines around the world at the moment. Wow. So definitely edging towards. How many are there then? I, I have got no idea because, you know, when you go to sort of certain parts of the world, you may have aircraft uh, or airlines which have maybe two or three aircraft. I mean, uh, I've never been lucky enough to, say, fly down to the Seychelles as a, as, a, as a holiday maker. But I know that you've got these little uh, float plane operations that run yeah. between the airlines from the main airport. So they're an airline in their own right. They have an air operator certificate. Probably don't see the value of uh, IATA as a, as a, as a member organization that still have to fulfill the uh, rules and regulations of uh, the International Civil Aviation Authority. So a uh, good question. And anybody who's listening to this, uh, very interested to know if they can find out how many airlines they have on the world <laughs> any one point in time, because it does flux. You know, you yes. see some going out of business and new ones, yeah. uh, new ones starting up. Yeah. I think it's very reassuring. I, I love, so do a bit of plugging for some of the things that IATA does. For, for the general public, because I mean, it is open to anyone. It's an open access website. It's, you've got all the members; they can, they can see who belongs. But perhaps an idea of some of the bits of information and resources that are there for people, so they can have a good old nose around. Yeah, I mean, uh, the IATA website. I think you know, if you're interested in a specific area. Um, looking through the search function at that, it's it, it's quite quite uh, quite impressive to sort of see the areas that we focus on. I mean, you know, we have a division around the uh, environment, sustainability, and, and economics. We've got uh, a, a division around uh, financial services distribution because uh, we, we we have a financial clearinghouse. So that when you board a, a ticket, which maybe um, has a couple of airlines in, in the supply chain, everybody gets the right uh, sort of uh, payment at the end of the day. 
Uh, we have uh, a, a, a commercial team that does a lot of training and a number of commercial products that I'm involved in. And then the operations safety and security division in which safety sits, where we, we have IOSA, we have a similar program for ground operations in uh, ISAGO, so, so IATA safety audit for ground operators. Uh, we have a whole program around cargo, we have a flight ops division, uh, we have a security division. So I, if, you, if you want to sort of uh, look at anything in aviation, I bet my bottom dollar that you'll probably find something. Yeah, yeah. I could proper so proper geek out there, could you? Pardon me? You proper geek out there. Well, <laughs> you, you could if you wanted to, I, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah, I I remember recommending uh, during the pandemic, there was a lot of nonsense in the media about the air on board and stuff. And uh, you had some some really helpful videos about the HEPA filters and all that sort of how, and videos around how often the air is changed and how safe it is. Because a lot of people, they always... I, I don't know how many times I've had this said to me, you know, but, you know, I think there's something wrong with the air because every time I go on holiday, I always get cold, you know, I just think, well, it's probably nothing to do with the fact that you've been working like an idiot right up until the holiday and then your body goes, ah, time to collapse now, you know. I, think I, I was I was hoping, Paul, that nobody would talk about COVID and the uh, challenges oh, to try and evidence how safe the cabin air was because, um, you know, there was a lot of focus on, the aviation industry being a, a feeder for COVID around the world. Um, and then the work that's been done about the airport and the, the aircraft environment, you know, really has demonstrated that actually it's yeah. probably one of the safest parts of your journey. Yes. And uh, we, we did some uh, work with NASA who were working with us to ensure that with their huge supercomputers, they could validate some of the models that we were using. Um, and, and as you sort of say, you know, you talk about people maybe working uh, incredibly hard, but you've just got to think about the whole journey from getting from A to B, from your home to the airport, probably taking a train or a bus, getting yeah. into the car park, handling, um, you know, your ticket for a commonly used ticket machine, pushing a trolley around the terminal, and then you get onto the aircraft after you've gone through security, passport control. There are so many touch points where you're actually touching the same surfaces as somebody else. To sort of narrow it down to the aircraft being the uh, main culprit was was very disappointing. But I hope we proved yeah things with very strong evidence to ensure that actually you know touch wood if it ever happens again we're better prepared and we actually know where the weak spots are to ensure that we focus on those than. Um, Perhaps those which were the lowest hanging, or considered the lowest hanging fruit of the time. Well, it's it's quite a sexy topic, commercial aviation, isn't it? You know, if, some, if the media is like a slow day, it's an easy it's an easy win. You know, and sometimes some of the I don't know if you get like this, but I've got that stage in life where I find myself shouting. I see stuff in the media, and I hear them talk about aviation. I think, oh, that's a load of crap. You know, it's just so frustrating. It's such nonsense. <laughs> well, Paul, I have to say, I mean, you know, we we do all our work based on evidence, which is based on data and information. Yeah. And, you know, if a story doesn't have the data to back it up, then I, I, I would say I feel very much like you. I think also whenever there is an event in aviation, or whether, whether that's just something that's going to make the headlines or, or something, you know, around an incident that's taken place. We'd like to be there making sure that we provide a considered opinion based on the evidence that has actually been discovered 
relating to an event once it has been released, not to sort of uh, hypothesize about, oh, well, it could be this, it could be that, because it doesn't do anybody a service. And actually, as you say, for the, for the traveling public, you know, if you've got 20 people who the media can sort of immediately turn to to tell a story, yes. okay, even before an investigation has gone gone ahead, then we're really going to sort of be spreading, I guess, a narrative that isn't always going to be, you know, proving to be truthful in the end. So, yeah, it's difficult. It's, it's, a, it's a frustration piece of the business, actually. You know, I, I think we'd always like to express a view, whatever stage um, or, or, or a, of a story we're, we're talking about, but I think our professionalism means that we actually have to hold off until we actually have the information at our fingertips to yep. be make it able to to be able to make a considered opinion. So there's a fantastic one. I'm just going to underline that. So you just heard that. You so as Mark has pointed out, the people that are going to be talking. If something does happen, and it's exceptionally rare that it happens, as you know, but if something does happen. You're not going to be hearing from the experts because they'll be thinking that they're considering the evidence of what they know so far. And if there's an interim report released, then it'll be through the official channels. But unfortunately, uh, that in the desperation for news, which you can kind of understand as a huge need, that often the media will interview somebody, they'll put such and such expert underneath, and that's it. Unfortunately, so I always say to people, don't watch the news. Don't, you know. So if they want to know, we always say stick it on our love fly. Facebook group or put it in the you know somewhere they can find it or actually go onto the IRT website see if there's anything on there because these are the places where it'll just be facts rather than just supposition you know and uh, so that's a really good point you just made there. So you do lots of great work. What's what's some of the sort of hot topics at the moment? If if you're allowed to say what sort of things? Um, I mean the sort of very happy to sort of say say what we're doing because a, a lot of the work we do is uh, on our website under the safety program section uh, where it describes our strategy. Our strategy is around three pillars of safety leadership, of safety risk and of safety connect. And the narrative that goes with that, uh, that we came up with following the end of COVID, it was uh, an area where we'd lost a lot of people from the industry and quite a few hadn't, hadn't returned. Yes. So um, we wanted to make sure that the airline industry remained resilient. We had the right professionals in the right jobs to ensure that safety wasn't ever compromised. So the safety leadership piece is uh, around safety starts at the top. And it's easy to say, but probably a little bit harder to demonstrate. So uh, we, we've just had a, a, a great launch of our safety leadership charter where we've got uh, 35, year, 35 airlines this year um, their CEOs sign up to uh, the IATA Safety Leadership Charter and eight principles contained within it to sort of show how we can continuously evolve the safety culture within our organizations. And why that's really, really important is everybody who works in a safety critical business like aviation has a role to play. Yes. And one of those roles is even if it's not your area of expertise, if you see something that doesn't look right, put your hand up and make somebody aware of it. Yeah. Um, and, and that means, you know, we're gathering in more information, we're understanding risks in more detail, and we can make our mitigation stronger. So the safety leadership thing and embedding a, 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 a better safety culture within all of our airlines and service providers is really, really important. 
Now that reporting piece goes into this second pillar of safety risk. So we're having risk-based IOSA where we're getting a number of insights coming in from the airlines where maybe there's a few weaknesses um, around certain barriers. Right? And then on top of that, we've improved reporting. So actually we're getting more safety professionals and those just working in a safety-orientated company to, to highlight areas where, again, there may be weaknesses. Uh, to ensure that at the end of the line, we've got a number of uh, uh, safety initiatives that deliver that continuous improvement. So that's what the safety risk pillar is around. And then I think, you know, the thing I've found about professionals in all of my areas of, of work in the past is we gather and we do things which are really, really great, but we don't always communicate to everybody out there who needs to know about it. So the Safety Connect is about making sure that we don't just work within IATA with the governance groups that we have. We don't just work with those subject matter experts. We don't work with just those collaborative partners who represent other parts of the industry. But we find a two-way conduit of being able to get the message out when we've learned something new. But also any airline that signs up to Safety Connect can share what they've just learned about something within their own operation. So it doesn't just sit within one airline. Yeah. It immediately gets fed to all the airlines around the world. So that's the narrative around the strategy, of which, as I say, you can see quite a lot of um, on, on the uh, safety program side of the IATA uh, website. And I think a couple of uh, hot topics at the moment. Um, I, I guess we're, we're, we're dealing with uh, some issues around GPS, uh, so the global navigation system interference around regions of the world, world where there are, are, are sort of conflicts or, or periods of unrest. So because it can be, it can be turned on or off depending uh, where you are and what you owe to ensure that your adversaries don't know where your assets are. Yes. Okay, unfortunately, that's affecting uh, civil aviation a little bit. Uh, we're doing a lot of work on that to make sure that the ground-based navigational aids remain intact so that actually if the satellites aren't doing what they have, we've got ground-based navigational aids um, and inertial reference systems in the aircraft as really solid backups. So that would be one thing we're looking at at the moment. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 So that's a really big uh, topic of conversation. Uh, another area, I think, uh, and we're going to be talking about this in our own Global Media Day next month, um, is, is about we've seen a number of events since COVID relating to runway incursions um, in the US. Trying to understand, again, from that data-driven approach, how big is this issue? Okay. Yeah, I'm really glad you said this, Mark, because I've been trying to get an answer to this, because I've been saying it's probably over eight. But this is done. I'm going to shut up now. You know, you know, you're onion. Get on with it. So I'll <laughs> shut up. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it, it's it. We we have to know the extent of the problem. If, for example, there are any hotspots around the world, how we identify those spots, hotspots through um, our data-driven programs, of which IATA has a number, of which the airlines contribute to, to make sure that we understand the issue understand how we can avoid it happening again and putting the right mitigations to ensure that is the case. And then the last bit, I guess, is a bit of a review loop. Have the changes we've taken uh, made or provided with the desired outcomes? In other words, are we seeing less of an event happening? 
So we saw a number of events in, in, in the US. We've not seen many over the last few months. Maybe it was about the industry gearing up after COVID. Uh, maybe it was about bringing on new safety professionals uh, to fill in maybe the roles of those who retired over, over yes. the pandemic. But I think, you know, the, 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 the industry has, has stood up to the plate and, and, and sort of said, right, okay, we've got an emerging issue here we need to deal with. It's not. It's not something we can say. Right, we we've done it. But we we've just seen um, guidance material come out of Europe. Europe Control is uh, one of the partners we collaborate with around runway excursions and runway incursions to make sure that we've checked the guidance materials out there, updated it for any new trends we've seen, and then communicating it as best as we can to ensure that actually everybody understands where the issues are and what they need to address them. Love that. Me thinking actually as you're talking about that, I can see why these things will trigger people and the fact that there is a reasonable response to it, which is how you just described there. But I've always wondered, I'm being quite incredulous really, how safe it is. With your background and I now, you've worn several hats now. This this area. What? How have they? How has commercial aviation managed to stay and, and keep getting safe and safe? Yeah. You know, what's what's the sort of magic sauce? If you like. Well, gosh, I think the first thing before we get into maybe a, a couple of things that have actually made that step change in in safety from maybe where we were in the sixties and seventies is we never stop. Okay, uh, and you know, we can never say that safety is done. We're always challenging ourselves as an industry to make sure that we're looking for that. And it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of one of those buzzword bingo phrases, but it's always looking for that continuous improvement. Yeah. And I think the industry as a whole is just benefiting from so many people, so many professionals with that mindset. In other words, you know, we're we're looking to continuously improve. We're looking and willing to understand where things perhaps haven't gone as well as they should have, both at a individual professional level, but also at a systemic issue level, and understanding how we can improve on that. But and and we've done some really phenomenal things uh, through technology. If you look at uh, a number of what we used to call uh, the significant seven or high-risk categories, which used to uh, cause incidents and accidents quite regularly in the 60s and 70s, and you very rarely hear about them now, is down to technology. The controlled flight into terrain, the way that EGPWS, so ground proximity warning systems work, enhanced ground proximity warning systems work, just provide so many tools in the flight deck to highlight areas where you may be um, flying into an area of high terrain, well below you, but you know that the terrain is higher where you are than maybe where you took off or landed. Uh, but also around airfields, there's a lot of high ground. Well, even Geneva, you've got the Alps to the south and the Jura to the, now, to the north. So it's great to have ground proximity warning systems as part of the aircraft systems to, to avoid uh, conflict uh, and, and potential control flight into terrain. Uh, the other side of things, I think, if you look at travel avoidance for two aircraft in, in, in the in the air, I mean, mid-air collision is, is something that used to be uh, a concern, a big concern. 
and now with the you know, traffic collision and avoidance system that all aircraft have that allows the pilot to continually look out the window but knowing on those days where they're going to be flying most of the day through cloud that they've got an electronic system there that is communicating with every other aircraft in vicinity and determining that if there should be a proximity between aircraft that there's a coordinated coordinated action that one would um, perhaps descend and the other would climb, uh, you know, in in the same sort of airspace. So, so I mean, there's so many things out there. I mean, yes. even the runway piece that we talked about, you have the aircraft now determining whether there's enough runway to stop in without just relying on the uh, performance calculations of a pilot. So it's all these redundancies that continue to be introduced, Paul, yeah. uh, to aviation and continually are introduced to aviation. That makes us safer and safer. Yeah, I find it staggering. But I always say, things are 100% safer. Commercial aviation is one of those things where I feel like it's not far off. Yeah. And you're, yeah. But every time I hear about a new addition to the safety, I think, crikey, you know, it was already safe. And now they've got this extra thing, this extra thing. And it's always these extra backups. And also the human element as well. There's yeah. Around that side. We've had a yeah. couple of people on talking about human factors side of stuff. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a really interesting area as well, isn't it? Do you, does the IATA have a, a view on that or input into that side of it as well? Well, human factors are a big part. I mean, we have an IATA safety group, and within that, we actually have a human factors task force. So we're looking at you know that that interaction um, in in the uh, flight deck and with the cabin crew actually, because that's a really important point. The way that the cabin crew uh, communicate with the flight deck. It's co- taken a couple of you know events in the past to sort of refine it as well as we have. I, I, I would sort of say the East Midlands accident of X number of years ago was a great um, yes. example of where that CRM, which used to be cockpit resource management to crew resource management, mm. considering every resource you've got within the aircraft, is is is, is really really important. So human factors is is uh, key and understanding how the human has the interactions of the human have have allowed the aircraft um, systems to be monitored in a way that is always looking for that challenge and response I think is is, is really really important um, I think at the same time we've got to be aware that you know technology is doing some amazing things at the moment and if you look at some of these urban air mobility um, vehicles I mean they're pilotless so uh, I don't know what the future looks like um, and please don't let me uh, or ask me to look into my crystal ball. But, um, you know, I, I think there has to be a point where actually the system is safer without the human than it is. It's not where we are now. So no, if you can listen to this, don't panic. But uh, it reminds me of the old Ford motor car where somebody used to wave a red flag in front of it when they were first on the streets because it was such a terrifying thing. Or an elevator without a, 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 a lift operator. Or even, you know, some of these trains you have without drivers, you know, the DLR in London, for example. I mean, they work. They work yeah. very, very well. So we're continually assessing where those next safety improvements are. I think every time we look at where that next iteration is, we're looking at what is that additional safety improvement it provides, okay? Because we're leveraging technology to enhance safety, not just to keep it at an equivalent level, I would suggest. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about a pilot's aircraft just yet. I think for some people it freaks them out, you know, with 
with amazement as well that that they can land themselves. You know, they just they're like that blows their mind. You know, having sat in the flight deck and watched that it is quite it is phenomenal. You know, it's it's brilliant. It's it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And actually, you know, just that you're talking about auto lands, I guess, on commercial aircraft. You know, in in uh, airfields that have uh, specific protections around them at times yeah. when the weather is uh, particularly inclement. But actually, there are some general aviation aircraft manufacturers, which now, if the pilot gets into some sort of physical or or mental incapacitation that they can push a button and it will auto land itself. I mean, it's just phenomenal. It's not something that we're considering in, in commercial at this point, but actually some of the the sort of technology out there. And if you look at where the car industry is going as yeah, well, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, we're talking about the cruise control having so much additional functionality in the future. I mean, you know, the world just doesn't stop looking no. at it fresh opportunities to, um, you know, make us safer in whatever form of transport. And I have to say, going back to your earlier point, I'm really proud with the safety record in aviation as the safest, you know, form of long distance transport, you know, out there. No, no doubt about it. And by miles, you know, you, you, you may not believe it, but, um, with, with, uh, probably 40 million flights next year. And the number of events that take place com- when you compare it with trains and and, and you know uh, road transport, it it is quite amazing how is. safe aviation is. But as I said, we don't ever sit on our laurels and think, right, okay, this is done. We're always looking at what next. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's almost a mic drop moment, that Mark. But uh, I think I might just push you for one sort of like. There's so many things I could ask you, but I think what I would do, I'd love to hear from you. If you were to sort of say sum up then, for anyone who's a nervous flyer thinking, yeah, I'm not so sure. Yeah, you know, he sounds, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but why should I trust commercial aviation? What would your kind of like big piece of wisdom be? <laughs> no pressure. Is it? Gosh. I, I, I don't know how, how big my wisdom is, Paul, but I'll, I'll give it I'll give it a shot. I mean, for me, when I was flying, you know, you see nervous passengers. And as it sounds like you, you've been fortunate uh, enough to be on the flight deck. You know, when I, when I was flying, you know, you understood by first-hand conversations with those nervous flyers what they were concerned about. Some haven't changed for decades. I mean, my mother... When she first got on a 747 in the uh, early 70s, going to uh, Australia, you know, I think a lot of people are going, how on earth can something weighing hundreds of tons get into the air? So I think, you know, explaining the physics of flying uh, most certainly alleviates some of the concerns uh, related to it. I think, you know, speaking to other people, yeah, and sharing your experiences throughout a flight when we could have people on the flight deck was great where you saw somebody looking very, very concerned when they started a journey, but understanding the professionalism of yeah. the crew, not just in the flight deck, but also in the cabin to make sure everybody feeds off each other to ensure that the operation is the safest it can be, which is pretty damn safe, I have to say. I mean, 10 to the minus nine plus you know, for for the duration of a flight. So, so you know, I, I think the professionalism, 
the equipment these days. You walk onto the uh, flight deck and it looks more like the Starship Enterprise than something you may have seen in some uh, videos of uh, of years gone by. And the reliance of the parts. I mean, you know, my father was an airline pilot and uh, he used to talk about, you know, engine failures as if it was part of the day job. I flew for 20 years without having uh, to shut down an engine. And that's down to the fact that actually, you know, the parts are made, A, with some amazing material, but B, the resilience of those parts is just beyond anything that anybody anybody could imagine. So I just think if you look at the aviation industry and every part of a nervous flyer's journey, there's somebody thinking about every part of that. And, and, and they don't just think about it from getting the show on the road. They think about it as in they have skin in the game, they have a professional attitude, and they need to make sure that this flight is uh, departing on time with all of those safety boxes ticked. That's a great one to finish on. <laughs> and I think anyone listening to that would be massively reassured. So just to sort of do a bit of name checking. So if you want to find out more about stuff that Mark and his teams do, have a look on IARTA.org. And there's lots and lots of great stuff on there. And there's any, any particular sections that you think would be most relevant to a nervous flyer? Yeah, I think, uh, Paul, if you sort of... Uh... Uh, direct them to the um, IALTA safety programs. Uh, you'd be able to find lots of information on there, especially around our safety issue hub and all the guidance material we put out there to the airlines and the manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera, and all of the things that we've identified. Amazing. Mark Searle, that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Gold, that was very good. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be massively helpful for people. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really, really grateful. And, uh, oh, I'd love to get you back if there's any other developments that happen along the way. But that was a, a brilliant start. And it built up nicely to uh, John's and Jasper's stuff that he did probably over a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, he did that podcast. But that was, that was great. And some extra stuff as well. So thank you. Really great. Thanks very much, Paul. Very happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Love Fly podcast. I hope you're finding it helpful with your fear of flying. Now, if you do need some extra tailored help, you can go to our website, lovefly.co.uk and click on the courses button. You'll find more help there, such as our 30-day program and our on-demand webinar. Thanks again. See you next time.